Hi, this is Carla Adam. I'm a reporter in London, where it is hot, hot, hot. Today is the hottest day on record in the UK. Like, ever. We are at record-breaking temperatures today. I slept on some sunscreen and a hat and ventured out to a council estate or social housing block in North London. Hi there, I'm excited about you. My name is Carla, I work for the Washington Post, and I'm writing a story today. Carla spent the day talking to people who live in a public housing complex called Shellcott's Estate. And today it was very much a hothouse. And like many homes across the UK, both public and private housing, most of the ones in these tower blocks didn't have air conditioning. In the flat, it's crazy. You, the, the fan's just blowing out hot air. One of the people that Carla spoke with was Paul Raffis. All night you can't sleep. It's just the, the humidity. It's absolutely crazy. There's nothing you can do. You just got to sort of grin and bear it. Plenty of water. Getting up several times in the night, you know. But when it's hot, you suffer in these blocks. From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, July 19th. Today, we'll hear how record-breaking heat in the UK has climate scientists all over the world very worried. And we'll also turn to the US, where President Biden is scrambling to figure out how to deliver on climate action without the help of Joe Manchin. It is hot as crackers. It is hot as the devil's kitchen. It is very hot. It just crested uh, 40 degrees Celsius. So that puts us at uh, 104 degrees Fahrenheit and above, still headed up. Temperatures in the UK have been recorded in one way or another since the year 1659. And no one has seen a day as hot as this one. But as Post-London Bureau Chief William Booth says, this is likely just the beginning. Britain is like the home of climate science and the home of these long, long-term meteorological observations. And scientists here didn't think they would hit 104 degrees or 40 degrees Celsius, probably for some years out into the future. And so they saw some climate modeling at the end of June that forecasts that maybe, maybe Britain would reach these numbers today. And most of them did not believe it. I mean, these are scientific experts who looked at some modeling and said, there's no way. There's no way, bro. It's not going to get this hot. But it did get this hot. Hmm. And they're floored. It's a heat wave, but it's like a super heat wave. And so it's hitting numbers that they didn't expect to happen uh, for some years, um, and it's become a more frequent event. It's not an, a hundred-year event or a th- every thousand-year event. It's it's going to be in the future if we don't change our course. You know, a one in every three-year event, which has people uh, frightened. And talk to me a little bit about why 104 degrees Fahrenheit is so hot for for especially London, or how the city is not really prepared or built for temperatures like that. I mean, the problem is that England and Britain is is not made for these kinds of temperatures. The houses aren't built for them. The 
infrastructure isn't built for them, the subways, the the rail lines, the bridges. So uh, I think it's probably safe to say less than 5% of British homes have air conditioning. The homes are designed to hold heat in. They're not designed to be uh, ventilated and, and cooling places in the summer. So it's mm-hmm. a misery. When it hits this temperature here, it's just super hot. And how are people in the UK dealing with this level of heat? They're wilting. They're not happy. Their people didn't go to work today. Um, the rail lines told people not to take any rail traffic or use the tube unless, you know, ap- quote unquote, wow. absolutely necessary. People are hunkered mm. down. They're living kind of like cave people in their houses. You walk through the streets in my neighborhood here. They're not really out on the streets and they don't have any air conditioning. And so they're just, they're carrying on, but they're miserable. So this seems like a pretty intense situation in England right now. And that is magnified by the fact that we're seeing these wildfires that are raging in Spain, France, Portugal, Greece. Can you talk a little bit more about what we're seeing across the region and and why this feels like a pretty, frankly, dire moment in, in Europe right now? Yeah, I mean, Europe is using climate people and officials. They're using words like climate apocalypse. Forecasters are warning of a heat apocalypse. In France, officials say the country is experiencing an apocalypse of heat. There's huge wildfires uh, across many places in Europe right now, uh, southern France, northern France, Portugal, all around the Mediterranean. They're seeing temperatures that they haven't seen, you know, since the last records were broke just a year or two ago. Europe, like England, isn't built for this kind of heat. The continent is just getting sucker punched um, with these kinds of temperatures. I mean, several thousands of people probably died in Britain in the last big heat wave and many more in France. It really gets old people. It gets people who are poor or, or lonelier and don't have as much social contact. So it's a deadly event. And is there a sense that what is happening right now is putting more pressure on European leaders to intensify negotiations around around climate climate action or to do something substantive about this? Well, it's like a push and pull here in in Britain and the and Europe, right? So, energy prices here are spiking. Uh, they're they're going sky high. Gasoline, diesel. This winter's electricity bills are going to be absolutely through the roof for many reasons, because of the pandemic and because of the war in Ukraine and Russian, you know, energy supplies. But at the same time, the Europeans and Britain have made like really ambitious promises about going to, you know, net zero in their economies by 2035, 2045, 2050. And and I think this is when the rubber is going to meet the road. The leaders here are wary of these high energy prices and high inflation, but they also made big, bold promises to do a great energy transition towards greener and more sustainable. And they're going to get increasingly stuck uh, between these two positions as it gets hotter, as, as there are more days just like today, a fry pan. William Booth is the Post-London Bureau Chief. Lexi Diao produced this story. After the break, why President Biden's big plans to address climate change are once again in hot water. We'll be right back.
The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. So, Tony, as we are all seeing headlines that are really scary from around the world and here in the U.S. when it comes to extreme heat, wildfires, how much climate conditions are getting worse, what has been happening in the U.S. in terms of climate policy and attempts to, to take action to try to do something? It's such a juxtaposition right now. Tony Rahm covers Congress and economic policy for The Post. On one hand, we're witnessing all of these horrifying headlines about record heat in places like the UK and concerns about natural disasters and so forth. But here in the nation's capital, there actually hasn't been a whole lot of action, at least on Capitol Hill. You know, once upon a time, Democrats hoped that they were going to use their rare majorities in control of the House and Senate and the control of the White House to push forward the most ambitious climate agenda that we've ever seen. And since then, however, the fighting between Democrats Democrats, largely folks in the party and Senator Joe Manchin, have scuttled a lot of those hopes. And things sort of hit their climax last week when Senator Manchin said that he was not going to support a sprawling economic package that included billions of dollars in new climate spending. I said, Chuck, until we see the July inflation figures, until we see the July um, basically uh, Federal Reserve rates, interest rates, then Let's wait until that comes out so we know that we're going down a path that won't be inflammatory to add more to inflation. Manchin said he would support climate spending perhaps sometime in the future, once the economy improves, but he essentially dashed Democrats' hopes in taking action this month on a package that could have provided hundreds of billions of dollars towards reducing emissions and investing in new clean energy technology. And I know that there has been a lot of frustration with Joe Manchin from Democrats in Congress uh, over the last almost two years of of thinking, you know, he is the person who is holding up um, any substantive action on climate change. But can you talk a little bit more about this moment and, and why this moment, I think, to a, a lot of Democratic lawmakers was, frankly, kind of galling? Yeah, it's not often that one party controls basically all of the branches of government, right? And so when we began this conversation more than a year ago on this agenda known as Build Back Better, Democrats had grand ambitions. They thought they needed to use this moment because they didn't know when another moment would come around when they could deliver on their climate pledges. And remember what Biden is looking to do here. He's essentially looking to have emissions based on past levels by 2030, which is a very ambitious goal, but one that probably is not possible without some sort of congressional action. So that's why there was so much pressure on Democrats to do something. But what we essentially saw was Manchin raise a series of obstacles over the past year that has forced Democrats to progressively whittle down their ambitions. 
You know, we began this conversation talking about a sprawling roughly $550 billion package that would include these tough penalties on polluters and an end to these tax credits that subsidize fossil fuel companies and all sorts of things. But over the months, what we saw was Manchin raise objection after objection. Sometimes it was because of his, you know, his backyard. I mean, remember, Manchin, it represents a coal-heavy state in West Virginia, doesn't really believe Mm -hmm. in the sort of government regulation that other Democrats would like to see. And sometimes his objections were fiscal, not because of anything specific that Democrats wanted to do on the climate, but because of the broader concerns about the price tag of the bill and what that could mean for the deficit or for inflation going forward. I think a strategic pause is necessary right now. We have the unknown, and the unknown is everything you've been talking about. COVID, what's going to happen with COVID, what it'll do to the economy. No one's talking about inflation or debt, and we should have that as part of the discussion. And so that puts us in the situation that we're in now, where Democrats essentially don't have a pathway forward, at least not a guaranteed one, to do anything in the next few weeks, and potentially at all before the election. Uh, They need Manchin's support, and so they can't move forward unless they can come to some package that he's willing to back. And we've heard some kind of vague statements from Manchin saying, well, maybe next month if the economy is looking more encouraging and I feel more comfortable about this level of spending, maybe that's when we can do something. Are people buying that? I mean, is there any reason to believe that like a month from now will be the time when Democrats will finally be able to take sweeping action on climate change? Yeah, I talked to one Democratic lawmaker who kind of described the situation like, you know, the Lucy Charlie Brown football situation where like every time (laughs) they think that they're close, Manchin pulls the football away on them. I think Senator Manchin's folks would very much disagree with that characterization, but suffice to say, it tells you a lot about where the caucus sits right now, that they really don't trust that if they wait a few more weeks, that Senator Manchin is going to change his mind. And there are two things to keep in mind here, right? The first is that Manchin wants to see inflation numbers. He talked about this on a radio show in West Virginia just a few days ago. Inflation is absolutely killing many, many people. They can't buy gasoline. They have a hard time buying groceries. Everything they buy and consume for their daily lives is a hardship to them. And can't we wait to make sure that we do nothing to add to that? And I can't make that decision on basically on taxes of any type and also on the energy and climate because it takes the taxes to pay for the investment in the clean technology that I'm in favor of. We aren't going to get those inflation numbers until early August. And those numbers will tell us what we saw with prices in the United States in the month of July. The most recent reports that came out a few days ago showed that inflation in June jumped by more than 9%. And that's what got Manchin to reevaluate some of his positions about climate spending. But the second important thing to remember is that Democrats are kind of racing against the clock. In order for them to pass any sort of economic package, they have to use this tactic known as reconciliation. Essentially, in short, it means that they can bypass Republicans. But they have to do it before September 30th. Otherwise, that pathway is closed off to them. So you begin to see why Democrats are so worried right now. If Manchin is not committing to any sort of path forward on climate, telling them, you know, let's wait and see a few weeks, then Democrats are worried that they're going to get to September He's going to say no again, and then they're not Mm -hmm. going to have any opportunity to do anything at all, even outside of climate, because there just isn't going to be enough time left. Hmm. And how is President Biden responding to all of this Um, and responding to what seems like just this one person who is holding up um, what the entire party is trying to achieve? 
Yeah, President Biden didn't say anything, actually, about Senator Manchin, which was sort of striking. I am not going away. I've used every power I have as president to continue to fulfill my pledge to move toward dealing with global warming. Thank you. Mr. President, is Joe Manchin negotiating in good faith? I didn't negotiate with Joe Manchin. I have no idea. You know, when these negotiations collapsed a year ago because Senator Manchin said he couldn't vote for this $2 trillion package that included climate, Biden and his top aides assailed the senator. They were very clear that they felt that Manchin had promised them one thing in private and then gone back on those negotiations. I hear all the folks on TV saying, why doesn't Biden get this done? Well, because Biden only has a majority of effectively four votes in the House and a tie in the Senate with two members of the Senate who vote more with my Republican friends. This time around, Biden put out a statement that didn't even mention the guy by name. He basically said, we're going to do what we need to do on climate. If Congress doesn't act, I'm going to take executive action. And then he encouraged Democrats to get back to work on a package that they could get Manchin's support on. In this case, a healthcare-focused package, something that can bring down the cost of prescription drugs and bring down the cost of insurance for about 13 million low- and middle-income Americans. But nowhere in there was any criticism of Manchin. And it's generally a reflection of the fact that last time this happened, it produced months of delay and acrimony, and Democrats simply do not have the time to fight that fight in public. And so what is Biden trying to do now that would at least do something on climate change? At this point, it's all about executive-level action. It's the executive orders and other kinds of agency decisions and policymaking efforts that the president can order using his own power. So what we started hearing uh, yesterday, the story that we posted last night into this morning, President Biden is now looking into declaring a national climate emergency, along with a series of additional steps to try to combat emissions and promote clean energy technology. On one hand, that would unlock a lot of things that the White House and the administration could do to issue new regulations and free free up federal funds. On the other, it's still a far, far cry from the $500 billion or so that we were talking about maybe about a year or so ago. And even then, there are other challenges on the horizon. There's this big fear that if the president goes too far and pushes the kind of aggressive action that many climate experts think is necessary, that they're going to get sued again. And a lawsuit last time resulted in the utter gutting of some of the powers of the Environmental Protection Agency. So Biden Mm. is left kind of grappling with a lot here. There's a clear demand for action, not just among Democrats, but from folks outside of Washington. But there are real limits to what he can accomplish, both politically and legally. Can you talk in a little more detail about what declaring a climate emergency would do? I mean, what are the the things that he could actually change because of that? And, And as you said, the many things that he cannot change? Declaring an emergency is sort of an open question for the White House. I mean, they haven't officially decided that they are going to take this route. And exactly how the president plans to invoke it was not clear to the sources that we talked to for our story. But climate activists have sort of outlined a menu of things that they think an emergency would allow the president to do. Things like banning exports of crude oil, limits on the kinds of leases that are awarded for oil and gas drilling, Things that allow FEMA or other federal agencies to release funds that might boost clean energy technology, for example. There's kind of a menu of things that the president could consider once he declares that emergency. And that's just part of what he can do here, remember. There are other executive orders that we think the president is looking at that could just generally toughen emission standards for cars or power plants or whatnot that we believe is under consideration right now. But in doing so, remember, Biden kind of faces a weird three-dimensional game of chess. On 
one hand, he's got to do something aggressive on climate for the exact reasons that we've pointed out in this conversation as we see temperatures rising around the globe. On the other hand, he has to grapple with the fact that inflation is real and gas prices earlier in the summer, at least, were at near record highs or at record highs at some point. And anything that he might do to limit oil and gas production and consumption could result in even higher prices there going forward. And lastly, he has that threat of a legal challenge. If he goes too far, he could see himself back in federal court where federal environmental regulations could be at stake. What do climate activists say about where the state of things are politically right now. The fact that Democrats can't pass anything that is more significant, that Biden is looking at this national emergency, but it seems that the effects are really limited, or that in some cases they might even be um, rolled back by the Supreme Court or, or not really that durable. Well, everybody's furious. I mean, Democrats are furious. They think that they've lost an opportunity. They're demanding on Biden to act, but they know there's only so much he can do. Climate activists are furious. Everybody sort of feels that Senator Manchin has not been as direct and forthcoming in these negotiations as he should have been. But at the same time, there is a sense of powerlessness here because Democrats can only take action if they have the support of every member of the caucus plus the tie-breaking vote of Vice President Kamala Harris. Absent that, they can't act. Because the other part of this, of course, is that Republicans are deeply disinterested in signing on to any of the legislation that Democrats have talked about. You know, there are 100 members of the Senate. We often talk about this as just a conversation among Democrats where Joe Manchin is the lone holdout on big spending in areas like climate. But the reality is that there are 51 holdouts. There's the entirety of the Republican conference in the Senate, plus Senator Manchin, who doesn't want to see that spending right now. So there's a lot of frustration and a lot of uncertainty. And there's this feeling that we're going to lose, at least among folks on the Hill, they're going to lose this generational opportunity to do something on climate and that the consequences of that are going to be severe. And I think there's also the question of how that plays out in November. And if Democrats are trying to make the case of we are the party who can address climate change, that when you look around and see the headlines of the wildfires and the extreme heat, that the the way to respond to that is to vote for politicians who are pro-climate action. I mean, it's hard to really make that case when Democrats are, in fact, in control of all parts of the government right now, and then still nothing is happening. And, and there are reasons why that is. But I think that those are reasons that a lot of voters Democrat or Republican, I mean, anyone who's concerned about climate, like, won't find holds a lot of water. Yeah, I mean, this is why folks like Senator Bernie Sanders would say that this is why they need more progressives in Congress, because they know that they don't have the votes to do these kinds of things. I mean, if you want to be really cynical, I know hindsight's twenty twenty, but they didn't have the votes to do these things a year ago when they first started talking about a package that could have been as high as $6 trillion and proffered significant changes across the entire economy. It was always clear that Senator Manchin was did not share some of the more aggressive and costly ideas that others in his party had put forward. Um, the same thing was true with Senator Sinema earlier in the debate, although she has been an advocate for some of the work that Democrats have tried to do on climate. But this is the message that folks on the left wing of the Democratic Party have been sharing for a while, which is that they need more votes if people expect them to do the kinds of things that you just mentioned in terms of addressing climate change. Tony Rahm is the Post's Congressional Economic Policy Reporter. This story was produced by Renny Spranovsky. that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Ted Muldoon. It was edited by Maggie Penman. 
I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.